Hi, Vicky. Hi, Shane. Are you are you a history buff? Do you do you care about? Oh. That's unfair. Asking if you care about history. Does history interest you? Is it something you dive into outside of when you're like when you learn things through academics? No, I'm not like I'm not immediately. <laughs> I hate saying this. I don't like history. No. I hate saying that. That's not. I hate learning about our um, past. No, because I like I obviously value history. You know that you don't repeat. What's the None saying? of your former instructors are listening to this. You don't have to put on airs. Yeah, Mr. <laughs> Man would really not like this. Um, no, but I think I'm not just like, I'm not naturally drawn to like history, like reading history or like watching history shows. I'm really interested when I like hear things about history or like how okay. things connect to each other um, necessarily. But it's not I wouldn't say I'm a history buff, as you asked. OK. Yeah, that's totally fair. Do you like history? You know, I do, uh, but again, buffs say, I actually don't know in this context what we're considering a buff, but I will say. Oh, right. We need a scale. I'm, yeah. Well, what I will say is, so I am, I am interested in history mm-hmm. and oftentimes I do feel though, maybe similar to you, but I feel like learning about something, like I, I, I find a thing and mm-hmm. I go, oh, I want to learn more about that. And then right. I get a book about it or something. And then I read the book. I'm like, ah, oh, this book's kind of boring. Yeah. Like I want to. <laughs> But I, I will say that my um, my father is a huge history buff oh. and an avid reader. I mean, this this man, like he's he's retired, but um, I don't want to say even before them. He probably reads. He's one of these people that reads like a book a week type deal, if not yeah. more. I mean, that's probably very undercounting it. Uh, and most of his books are history esque, uh, and he's also not super. Um, technologically savvy and doesn't like okay. ordering things on the internet so literally he'll call me and say hey can you order this thing for me um and so i have probably <laughs> ordered him without exaggeration like 50 100 books over the past few years that are history type oh. books um but why the nice thing is that him my one of my brothers and myself we all kind of have similar tastes in this area yeah and so we just pass books around um, oh, that's great. But dad doesn't like that we keep them, i.e. I keep them. And so he started writing his name in books. And he'll... <laughs> so he can take them back. Yeah, and he doesn't... And here's the thing. Like, again, they're dad's books, sure, whatever. But he doesn't do anything with them. He doesn't display them. I have books all around me. Your background has books all around yeah. you, right? They just sit in the basement, but he has this thing. So his, name, his name is in all of these books. And you could probably go through probably at least half of my historical nonfiction books and yeah. they would have my father's name in them. So <laughs> that is that is his legacy and I guess his <laughs> aspect when it comes to being a history buff. <laughs> Science is fascinating, but don't just take my word for it. Join us as we hear stories from scientists for everyone. I'm Shane Hanlon. And I'm Vicki Thompson. And this is Third Pod from The Sun. Well, Vicky, we are uh, we're diving into the past today to talk about trees and war. <laughs> are do trees have wars? Oh, 
Um, so, okay, this was not where I was going to go with this. No, I don't think oh. so. Uh, trees are connected via this interesting, like, mycelial network, these, like, little fungal roots and stuff, and so they communicate right, with right. one another. Yeah. So I don't know, actually, if they have... Like, where, yeah, um, that's a really interesting question that we're going to have to table for another time. Okay, uh, okay. But no, not not war among trees, not war with trees. Though, though, uh, have you ever seen, um, have you ever seen the movie The Happening, the M. Night Shyamalan movie? <gasps> Wait. Spoiler alert for the happening. Tell me, give me, give me a clue uh, so that I could tell you if I've seen this one. Mark Wahlberg. People are dying of mysterious things. Uh, people can't quite explain what's going on. There's like vapors in the air. Okay, you've seen this. <gasps> yes. Uh huh. Is that the? Oh wait, is that the one where the person with the lawnmower? The person with. Or is that a different one? I I just I just know high level plot stuff. Um, oh. Is this the one where like the vape, like the bacteria or whatever it, that's in the air is like making people hurt themselves? Yes, that's it. Yes. Yes. There's a lawnmower scene that's very <laughs> not great. Again, I said spoilers. So anyone who's like, oh, yeah, I haven't seen sorry, that happening. It's it's like a 15 year old movie at this point. Uh, so it's no, a good one. not war among trees, not war with trees. Uh, so the episode itself, uh, our guest today, who I actually have to mention, uh, we interviewed him a while back. He's now a research associate at the Johannes Gutenberg University of Mainz. Oh, um, yes, I think. Nicely done. I, I I think I got that right, and if I didn't, I apologize. Uh, but our guest at the time was investigating the past through tree rings and actually found some really interesting connections to the U.S. Civil War. So my name is Max Torbenson. I'm a postdoc at The Ohio State University in the Civil Engineering Department. And my background is quite diverse. I have a PhD in geosciences, a master's in geography, and an undergraduate in archaeology. And I guess what ties all those things together is tree rings. So we're using tree rings to study past environments and climates. So that's how I try to sell that all these things are connected. How did you make the transition from your PhD in more geospace area to civil engineering? Like you said, tree rings, but what is that connection? Yeah, so at Ohio State, there's a big focus on water management. So everything from bridges and building bridges to looking at floods and drought. And one of the things that tree rings can do is to reconstruct climate and in this case stream flow back in time so my advisor there was looking for someone with the skill sets paleoclimatic reconstruction mainly yeah starting around 1855 so slightly before the u.s civil war especially the central u.s but probably the continent as a whole experienced unusually low rainfall so from 1855, 1856, for another 10 years or so, there was persistent drought across North America, but especially in the central part. So northern Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas. We know this from historical accounts. We know this from tree ring studies and from climate model simulation. And this drought was 
on par or perhaps even worse in places than the Dust Bowl drought of the 1930s. And it's thought, for example, to have played a role in the near extinction of the American bison. So people moved into the plains around this time and the grazing animals were pushed aside from the good spots of or the good grass and then on top of that was a big drought. So it's thought to have played a significant role in that. So it's a Civil War drought more because of the timing. It was in that time. That's correct, yeah. But did it have, or do we even have an inkling of whether or not this is true? Did it have an effect on the Civil War itself? Like where troops were, how they advanced, how they were affected, and how that might have actually altered the course of the war and how, and like the history behind it? So that's always kind of iffy. You're almost bordering on environmental determinism, right? When you're trying to, but there were definitely years during the war that were dry. And there's historical accounts of in Tennessee where some of the troops couldn't get supplies because they transported down river and so on. But I think the effect or the drought itself was most severe in the central U.S. And the war, there, you know, in the 1862-1863 was the big battles and were mainly in eastern United States. So the kind of trans-Mississippi theater of the war, there were battles in Oklahoma and Arkansas. That's probably, if it had an impact, that would be where that impact would have been. So maybe, but since the war was concurring and I'm in D.C. area, so like my part of the country more so, less effect of the drought there than where it was really hitting hard. Yeah, that would be... And again, it's likely that it had some effect... But because, again, this was the driest decade that we know of in Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Arkansas. So it's likely that it had some effect, but probably I wouldn't go as far as say that it had an impact on the outcome. Gotcha. How So you said we know from like, different accounts of like from folks that this happened. What Who was recording at the time? Are these just like first person narratives of just people who lived in the areas were they like white people were they native americans or indigenous folks like what types of groups were recording these things so there is a wealth of information and including actual historical what we now call instrumental data in the kind of frontiers there were forts that were stationing soldiers and they had some sort of instrumentation or measured how much rain fell. Carrie Mock is a climate historian has done work in the central U.S. on on this. But we also have newspaper accounts. We have Native American accounts, so pictograms, which are some of the Native American tribes in the Great Plains used pictograms, so almost like paintings or yeah, they're like drawing and carvings and yeah 
Okay. Yeah, exactly. And different symbols meant different things, and there have been interpretations suggesting that, for example, 1855 is known as the sitting summer, and that has been interpreted in combination with other records to have been a very dry year. Okay. So it was like doc- like everyone was documenting it, both from a scientific perspective the whole way down to just, like you said, in- indigenous folks, or basically it was affecting everyone and there's a good record of it. Yeah, definitely. And again, this is time in, in that part of the continent where European immigrants were just starting to... So the 1850s is kind of where we're starting to see expansion westwards in there so and that again in combination with a drought is thought to have played a, a role in how local wildlife including the bison was able to get on and what exactly did you all end up finding what was the results of this research I think the results suggest that places outside of this core region, they have experienced waxing and waning influence of ENSO, local droughts. So places like Arizona, Southern California, Eastern Texas. For certain periods, ENSO plays an important role on drought probability. For other periods, it's not much of a relationship at all. And what that also means is that those changes that we've seen in the instrumental data for the 21st centuries, those type of changes appear to have been a somewhat stable feature of climate dynamics in the past 350 years. And in terms of the Civil War drought, so the Civil War drought occurred during persistent La Nina conditions. So our estimates actually suggest that those conditions were even more severe than by taking a different or so it doesn't necessarily mean that ENSO caused the drought it probably did to a certain degree but it definitely played a role in the intensity and persistence and also the spatial imprint so the fact that for those 10 years so 1855 to 64 a lot of the US the continental US was in drought conditions of various magnitude so the kind of final thing there is that these expansions and contractions of ENSO influence, especially into the Great Plains, which was where the Civil War drought really hit the hardest. We speculate that those expansions and contractions could be tied to conditions in the Atlantic Ocean. really kind of interested in like the field aspect of this so i have the visual of you like drilling into a tree and like corking it essentially these sites you're on are they public lands are they private sites do you have to deal with like people asking you what the heck you're doing like what type of permissions do you need to get to do this type of work yeah they can be all sorts and i've been very fortunate especially during my phd to travel and work and all over the U.S. and Mexico and Brazil and South America. So it kind of depends on where you are. And again, if you're on public land, you usually need 
permission from, let's say it's a national park or a state park, or and there are private landowners that are really interested in knowing the history of their own land and understanding their surroundings better. So usually that's not a problem. And of course, some of these sites are more remote than others. But yeah, I've had, definitely had people come up to me asking me what I'm doing and if I'm, why I'm hurting the tree. <laughs> Have you had any like especially antagonistic interactions with folks? No, to be honest, most people have been very good and interested. I think most people are interested in this. I've heard stories and there are obviously, you always want to get permission before. And sometimes that might actually be tougher sometimes to get the permission to core because A, they can be in places where wildlife tends to be connected where they don't really want any major disturbance. Okay, so I bet that things don't always go as planned for him in the field, right? So whether people, their property, or even just wildlife out there? Yeah, yeah. So I asked him about that and some of the more, let's say, unsavory experiences he's had with wildlife. Looking back at the field, I always want to go back. But then obviously, when you're there, especially early when I started, I you think that you can do more than you actually can, right? I had a spider, pretty bad spider bite in, out in Oregon when I just moved to the U.S. and I was kind of new. And, and I also had some sort of, I, don't, I still don't know what it was, but it was either a bite or a reaction to something in the Amazon where I had something, a red pattern started creeping up my arm <laughs> that looked like along my veins, which was, yeah. Oh, man. And so just... Did you have to go to Las Or I guess if you're in the Amazon, I don't know if you have that available, but... We had gone back to civilization, so to say, when this started happening, but I was young and dumb, and <laughs> unfortunately, nothing really came of it. But the pictures look kind of grim now in hindsight. So he's been all over the world doing this kind of work, which is so cool. Um, but then he wound up in the States. So I wonder, how did he get here? So you touched on this, but you're not from the States. Yeah, I'm from Sweden originally. So, What drew you here? Was it the work specifically you were doing in your lab? Was it something else? What's, what really got your interest, not only in the States, but like specifically this type of work that you ended up doing? Yeah. My undergraduate degree was in archaeology, so slightly different. And um, there, people use tree rings to date artifacts or date buildings. Or, And I fell in love with tree rings during my undergraduate, and I realized that I wanted to do a continued study, but I wanted to do it in an English-speaking country because a lot of the European countries were tree rings are used are it's either germany or switzerland or spain and i got an offer 
do a master's at the University of Minnesota, and that was came with a stipend or teaching assistantship. And yeah, I always I ask because I always just think it's interesting how one how people get to where they're going regardless because people ask me because I'm no longer a researcher but still doing different science stuff, but especially folks who come to the states who aren't obviously from here. When you I think you touched on this, but the project at Arkansas, so the one we're talking about, the climate change and El Nino Natibet thing, did that project exist when you went to Arkansas, or did you choose to go there for your PhD for something else, and then this thing just happened to pop up? So this was, again, part of a larger project that had already begun, led by an idol of mine, Ed Cook at Lamont. So I saw it as a chance to interact with him and be a part of that. But initially, I'd come to Arkansas to work in South America. So they had a project funded down there, and I did. I spent time down there, and I helped out. But during the course of my PhD, I found a bunch of other cool stuff to follow up on and I've been fortunate to have people and advisors throughout supporting me in those kind of side projects. Yeah, certainly. What was it like from a kind of, so you've been all around, right? What was a cultural perspective, though, going from Sweden to Minnesota to Arkansas? Those are very different parts, even of like Minnesota and Arkansas are very different parts of the country. Being someone not from the States, like how... Was it just weird, like, culturally, or was it not really affect you that much? Or how was it just from a living perspective? It's been a journey, right? And I think that, uh, I think I've been, again, fortunate. Everyone's been so nice to me. I consider Arkansas probably more home than anywhere else right now. It was a bit of a change moving to the U.S., and I think that first step is probably the toughest right sometimes you kind of just have to do it and of course there are cultural differences and i keep seeing them but overall and what really strikes me when when people ask me why i love the u.s is that it's so diverse from especially from my point from an environmental standpoint you can be in arkansas and look at post oaks and bald cypress trees that are a thousand year old and you can if you don't like that you can go to california and be up in the mountains look at bristlecone pine and the redwoods and oaks up in minnesota or you have everything really within the border so i've been fortunate to experience a lot of that through field work Mm-hmm. What's uh what's your relationship with trees? Oh. Be careful, they're listening. They're, they are listening. <laughs> well, I feel like I have a really complicated relationship. It's complicated. Oh, fascinating. Um, I love I was just looking at something online that was a um like a video of a tree canopy, I guess, from above. Okay. And like how like it's just like moving in the wind. Like I love to lay under a tree forever. Sure. Um like looking up, you know, at a tree, very calming. I love, I love them in that way. But then also 
um, at my old house, I just moved, but at my old house, there was this huge tree. It wasn't huge when we moved in, but it grew to be huge. And I don't even know what kind it was, but it made all this sap mm. so that you literally could not park in front of my house, even for a couple hours yeah. without your car just getting covered in this like little droplets of this sap that's basically impossible to get off the car. Yeah. Yeah. So that's tough. I love them, but also don't do that. Yeah, I think um, I can't help but view trees now through uh, what they're potentially infected with. I <gasps> I just got back from from this class that I teach every year out in yeah. the field, uh, and we get to talk to a handful of really interesting experts, uh, especially in uh, botany and plant science and that sort of thing, things that I'm not super familiar with. But uh, we literally talk to a forester who walks us through a forest and goes, all right, that tree is diseased with this. That tree is diseased with this. Ugh. This is what's messing up this thing. This tree is going to be gone in 10 years. This tree is going to be gone in 30 years. There used to be trees here that are already gone. So, uh, so don't, I am... <laughs> don't, invite, don't invite that person to a party. <laughs> yeah, uh, super knowledgeable, but um, not... Uh, so yeah, I can't help but, but look through it through that lens. But on the flip side, right. there's lots of... Um, there are lots of conservation things going on as well. So yeah, it's not right. it's not all doom and gloom and that is not a way in which I like to end our episodes. So <laughs> I overall have a very positive association with trees and I'm very hopeful for uh, any sort of uh, conservation management or mitigation right. that will happen uh, moving forward. And so on that lovely note, that is all from Third Pod from the Sun. Thanks so much, Shane, for bringing us this story and to Max for sharing his work with us. This podcast episode was produced by me with audio engineering from Colin Warren and artwork by Jay Steiner. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the podcast, so please rate and review us. And you can find new episodes on your favorite podcasting app or at thirdpodfromthesun.com. Thanks all, and we'll see you next week. Just talking about trees makes me want to reread. What's that book? Is it the overstory or the understory? I don't know. We were talking about books before. You should have. You should have woven this in. Well, we weren't. But we weren't talking about trees yet. Oh, that's fair. Apparently, the understory. I don't. Still don't know what the book is. But the understory is the underlying layer of vegetation in a forest or wooded area. Oh, I mean that I do know. Oh. Yeah, I, I mean, I do. Okay. Well, no, that's not a ha ha ha. Look at me. It's like I literally I studied ecology and just came back from teaching it, so I should know a little bit about these things. I guess. I guess the book is the Overstory, the, overstory. the novel. Okay, I shall look into that. Is it a is it like a pop sci book? No, I wouldn't say so. It's um. Okay. It's like I can just Google it. Let me see. A sweeping and passioned work of activism and resistance that is also a stunning evo evocation of... Okay, there's lots of words that I can't pronounce. I'm going to stop. But anyway, I liked it. It's like one of those uh, novels that tells lots of stories, like lots of people's stories. I see. Which I always enjoy. I see. Yeah. Gotcha. The uh, mentioning the lots of words that you can't pronounce, I am, mm -hmm. I'm going through our backlog and mm -hmm. making more videos of us. Uh, and I just um, did the one 
uh, from our first series where we were talking about liaising and not being able to spell liaising. And I had <laughs> I had a good cackle. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, now that I know, it's liaising. Right. I'm like, Vicky, where's the other I? You're like, Shane, it's, right. it's right there. It's just, it makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that's yeah. that's us. We are great communicators. 